Today is a very special episode with my mentor from Dharma. That stands for the Data Management Association, by the way. My mentor is Mike Rose, and he was pivotal in implementing open data at DEFRA. So that's the UK government's Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, by the way. I decided to speak to him as part of this podcast for the Digital Twin Fan Club about the lessons learned and what went well and what didn't go well for Open Defra and how that all worked. Really interesting episode. So Open Defra started, um, so it started for me in the Environment Agency. Mm. Um, and in the Environment Agency, I was running a bit of the organisation, I think I told you last week, um, that licensed out data particularly flood data for commercial reuse by what we call value-added resellers in conveyancing, uh, mainly. What, so, what does that mean? So when you buy and sell a house, nice. Yep. When you buy and sell a house, you get a report on your house and it tells you if you live near a waste site or more pertinent maybe for, me, for, for climate, the climate emergency, whether you live in a flood zone and whether you're at risk of flooding. Um, and obviously people want that data and it's part of uh, uh, the the requirements of a property search report that it has that information in it and the environment agency used to license it out and make money about five million quid a year from that and there were other sources of revenue from the data but it was it was mainly that um, and there was quite a lot of pressure through the kind of early part of the coalition government when uh, or the late late part of the labor the Labour government, Gordon Brown's time, and then the early part of the coalition to for the Environment Agency to make its data open, which it resisted because the organisation quite liked this £5 million worth of income, which was like a slush fund. Mm. Um, it, could, it wasn't like the grant that comes from government is attributable to specific things, mm. whereas that money that came in wasn't. And they could uh, put it where they thought it needed to go. Exactly. And that's okay. what they did. Um, so, so, so is this before or after the magic map? Was this part of the same magic map? Because um, so magic, magic map was got... happening at the same time. Okay, because that was, a, I know that was a very valuable resource for a lot of uh, GIS yes. professionals. So, so at the time, um, the, da the data that was being licensed to the conveyancing market was also made publicly available by on the Environment Agency's website on a thing called What's in Your Backyard via yes. magic, via other portals. But you can but never... You couldn't get the data. Yeah, that was effectively an overlay. And I remember lots of people that I used to work with would download the magic map. So you could basically tick on all of the layers on this map and you could see the sort of flooding, um, yeah. you know. I can't remember what else is on there because there's, there's definitely there's, there's various types of flooding. There's, there's, there's like environmental designations. Um, there's like historic buildings, stuff like that. Oh, uh, conservation zones are on there. Conservation well. areas, triple yeah. SIs, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So Especially. very useful for planning and for all that sort of stuff. Absolutely, and and actually the the, the flood one of the products that the environment agency created is called the flood map for planning. Mm. You know, the, the whole it is all about. Not is not only, but it's mainly about where you put your property or, or where you shouldn't put your property. And if you've put your property there, what's the chances of it flooding? Hmm. Um, so, so that was that was the situation. We were licensing our data 
making money and there was a rear guard action going on saying yeah 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 we'll look at open data but um and then and obviously the francis maud was in there was the open data push across government that pressure was coming on and then we had like five big storms in a row um, and it was across the christmas period and i can never remember which year it was now because i'm getting old I, I think it was it might have been 14 15 13 14 it was around it was something like that um and those big storms meant that there was lots of flooding which meant that suddenly the pressure became really acute and very political um and i i remember listening or reading a transcript of a meeting where where the, the chief executive the then chief executive of the environment agency was told in no uncertain terms you will make this data open the flood data in particular um and it was like okay so that's that sorted then um so then i went through a process so i was managing that team and i went through a process of how do you move from this place where we're charging for money, paying organizations where we've used their data royalties to this place that we, we now need to be in, which is the data is available for free for anyone to use for whatever they like. So I think the there was a major flooding event in the winter of 2013. Yeah. The, the wettest winter on record for the UK since reports, since records began in 1910 by considerable margin and the stormiest for the UK and Ireland. But there was another one in 2015 that lasted 14 weeks that was severe extensive and protracted flooding which Im impacted most damagingly damagingly on northern britain northern ireland and parts of wales um and it, 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 that also broke loads of records apparently it, it was it was one of them too i'd have to go back and just have another look at my career <laughs> just, to, just to, <laughs> I, I i think it was the 13 one but i i'd have to double check um but the, the, the point being that pressure came on, the, the data the date then had to be made open and I had to go through a process of renegotiating a whole heap of data licenses with like Ordnance Survey, Centre of Ecology and Hydrology, Met Office and others to enable that to happen. That was fun. But what that proved, inverted commas, was that you could go from this position of data being closed and charged for to open. There was a, an approach you could take in government to do that. Um, and I think that piqued the interest of certainly people that were working in DEFRA, um, looking at data and open data in particular. And because of that, this, as I mentioned to you before, I think before you hit the button um, to record, I meant it got in front of this trust, this idea of we could release a huge amount of open data sets and inverted commas magic will happen and i don't mean magic map i mean magic in terms of outcomes from people using open data mm. um what was what was really important i think in that was that a really big target was set so a target of eight releasing eight thousand open data sets in a year was set by liz truss um i think at one point they were looking eight thousand is an odd number to pick right you'd pick ten or you'd pick five I guess it depends on what you mean by a data set. Does that count as one, say, one climate station? That's a different question that came up later. Oh, OK. Um, so this was just like, let's make the number big, but not too ridiculously big. That it actually, And, the, and the, 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 the number basically put pressure on the whole system to say, you can't do this, DEFRA and the people, the organisations that sit under DEFRA, you can't do this if 
you operate in the same way as you've always been operating. Mm. So basically, in the in the preceding like however many years, I think it was something like 80, 90 open data sets have been released total. And mm. it's like, so this is a, like a couple of orders of magnitude bigger. And so effectively, it was like, here's a sledgehammer to break the system, um, which is what it did. It put that pressure pressure on um, whole whole series of questions pop up, right? So what data are you going to make available? What is data? What's a data set? Yada, 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 yada. There are blogs. You can find them um, written by people who were looking at what we were doing in DEFRA and saying, ah, you're salami slicing data sets. You're chopping them up to make make your numbers up, etc., etc." You know, you are doing the weather station thing, saying you're releasing each weather station individually and saying it's a data set. <laughs> um, which, I mean, to be fair, to some degree was true. Mm. Um, but also a lot of single data sets that were quite useful got released as open data so an example would be the british food survey got released as open data for the first time and so you could go and see how, how much how much butter people were using back in the 1950s versus now and stuff like that so there was interesting data released and the other thing it did was it started to put pressure on the culture then this was the main bit for me is it put pressure on the culture across the different organizations so De defra and the organizations that sit under it have got environment agency rural payments agency uh, natural england uh, animal health uh, ahdb animal health db <laughs> um and there's a there's a bunch of them um and what this did is put pressure on them to examine how they publish data. You're looking it up now. I can yeah, see. yeah. It's not the Agriculture and Horticulture Development Board, is it? It is them. I said animal health, but it is them. Yeah. See, I just know them as AHDB. Yeah, exactly. It's all about the acronyms. This is the problem when you're trying to live unpack acronyms from nearly 10 years ago. You're going to struggle, right? Um, but yeah, so there's all there's all of these there's all of these groups that have got data that's useful that that we were we were putting pressure on. So it ended up that there was a bunch of people working across all of those organisations on this target. So it started to sort of like dissolve the barriers between the silos to some degree in the data space. So we were working together as a group. Mm -hmm. We built that built like a a wasn't exactly a skunk works team, but it was kind of like a skunk works team where we were working counter the culture to some degree across the silos we had good because it was a ministerial you know a, a sec the secretary of state's target the perm sec was really interested in us meeting the target so we had support um we also had um uh liz Truss appointed a spad from the open data institute you have to say what a spad is uh special advisor yeah from uh, <laughs> it sounds great it's like a perm advisor doesn't advise people about perms that's a permanent Yes, but also maybe there were perm advisors. The, per, the permanent, the perm secretary. Was it? Permanent, permanent secretary is the top, the boss of Defra. Yes, yes. and they do, and, and and she doesn't advise. She's not a secretary of perms. No, um, but no, again, so it's a very serious, uh, top of the chain sort of. Yeah, they have these sorts of weird administrative titles, but it's uh, yeah, yeah, and, and, top, and, and top of the food chain. 
They have robes as well, you know. It's, Do they? It's, yeah, well, that's yeah, how you know. That's how you know in the UK if somebody's really serious is like, uh, where's your chain? Where's no, your well, I, don't, I don't think they wear the robes, but there's definitely like a robe. But they could. Like, they well, exist for them to wear for special occasions, right? They, they exist. You know? they exist. I mean, you could wear it working from home. It's just a thought. You know, just sitting there and go on a Teams meeting with them and they're in the full getup. Well, like don't, like nothing like nothing's do. happened, you know. We all do we all do, do that, right? Um, <laughs> he says sitting here in his pants. No, I'm not sitting here in my pants. Um it's it's too late. We've all got <laughs> <much> now. <laughs> um so yeah, so 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 what actually happened so so and the special advisor from the Open Data Institute, uh, a lady called Ellen Broad, she's absolutely brilliant. But what that did was create a link between the team and the, the minister, which was again outside of the chain of command. So uh. what one of the things that usually happens, and it, you'll have seen this from you know working alongside government, is there's this there's this layer called the shit filters that I, that I call the shit filters, which means that going up in an organization. The news is always good. You always want yes. to put the, you always want to say the good stuff up until it's cataclysmically bad and you can't avoid telling the bad news. Um, and people filter so people filter out all of the shit at all levels. Um, so consequently, like oh yeah, yeah, this thing's going well. This thing's going well. This project's going brilliantly well. It's going well. Oh my god, we've spent all the money and it's failed. And it's like what? Where did that come? You told me it was going great. Yeah. Yeah, or managing upwards, uh, yes. I, I would call it. So it's a, I think a lot of people use that as a cynical technique for promotion. Uh, yes. So we we so we we were lucky in this project that we didn't. Well, we whilst we had that hierarchy and the hierarchy was all brought in, we also had some other routes to get things done, mm. uh, which meant that. Go on. No, that uh, reminds me of I think the very first innovation book I read. Um, which I can't remember right now, insert quote later, um, that said, if you know what you're doing, you use hierarchies. They're very good for tasks that you understand, right? This is the boss of that. They're accountable. Then we have the people who, who manage that. And then we have the people that do that. And because we have a system, we know what the task is. We go off and do it. And that doesn't work for new stuff. You, If you're doing new stuff, you want kind of a team of of a more organic organizational structure where people can just wander off and do what is necessary and they don't have to worry so much about the hierarchy because we don't really know what they're doing yet we don't really know how this works so just yeah. let's find out by giving them some freedom to see what needs to be done so so that illustrates it very well the other thing that i took from it is a lot similar to that it, if you look at an organizational hierarchy how we draw it out on a page you end up like a boss that has three line reports that then each of them has six line reports and you basically end up with a pyramid that you can see yeah what if you flip that on its side and you look down on it what you see is in the middle at the top you've got the boss and around them they've got like a series of concentric circles of people getting bigger and bigger and bigger and in an organization, you have a series of these bosses that sit on the top of pyramids. The boss has their own KPIs and the KPIs are for their pyramid. Yeah. But actually where the work gets done and the people that understand how it all fits together are at the bottom of the pyramid where the pyramids touch each other. And, and one of the things that we were able to do in this project by the, the way that we were structured, following your thought processes, is we were able to work at that kind of where the people touched each other level. Well, the, 
that sounds wrong, but you know what I mean. Uh, as in where people's, you know, they overlap with each other. They are in the same. They're in the same. Place. Similar roles, similar similar jobs, similar activities. So they're not just following the organisational KPI. They're, they're they're understanding what they're trying. You know, the, the bigger picture of what they're the, trying. The the job at hand, the task that needs doing. The yeah, the thing that's actually matters and is going to make a difference. Which and I've probably explained that really badly. I did write a blog a few years ago. I don't know. I, I thought that was pretty good. I mean, uh, the sorts of things that they're going to be dealing with is going to be like I imagine environment agencies, flood defences, and you know all that sort well, of so stuff. It's more, so so yes, and so they'll understand. So I'm thinking more of like the data datary people. I'm just trying to think of use cases. So to so illustrate the point. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. So, so in the environment agency, you'll have a, some data people who understand data, but they're working on flood defence data. In natural England, you'll have some data people who understand data, but are working on triple SIs. Yeah. In AHDB, you'll have some data people, they understand data, and they're working on vet, veterinary information. Okay. Triple SI is a site of spe special or specific site of special? Site of special scientific interest. And that's usually things like habitats, but it could be interesting geological stuff. It could be all sorts. It could be a nice hill. It could be a lovely ecosystem. It's, it could it's be all sorts of stuff. Ecos it's the lovely ecosystem bit. Um, okay. So, yeah, it could be like a water meadow. It could be yeah, a woodland, whatever. Um, but, yeah, so you've got all these different themes of data. So the bosses will be interested in the theme. So the bosses of the environment agency at the top of the period are really interested in floods and flood defences, not necessarily the data per se. Similarly, the other organisations, whereas the people that are doing the data stuff have got very common interests and understand it. And understand. And so that's where the overlap is. That's where the common working is. That's what we were able to bring together as a, as a group to go, actually, if we influence upwards from this place, People will understand because we're using their terms, their their words, their their sort of body of work. I feel like I jumped into a little bit of a rabbit hole there. But no, no, that that's good because we. I feel like we we've done a bit of an overview of what was, um, what was the situation in terms of the internal organisation. What were people doing? What was the need? What was the situation? Who's doing what inside Defra, the Department for Environment? Food. I know this one, rural food affairs. and rural affairs. Yeah, yeah. Department, yeah, Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Um, but we were then, so then let's put that in the context of going from this very lucrative slush fund, which yeah. I don't think was necessarily a bad thing, to open data, which isn't necessarily a complete good in the sense of it still had, it probably had more costs, right? So, so, so that's an interesting one. So, so I think that's a debate that. So, when, 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 um, listening to your podcast about talking about open source and skepticism around open source, um, I think there is a skepticism around open data, which is right in some cases because. A, all data can't be open for a number of reasons, because open means available for anybody to use for whatever they want. So certain data doesn't fit that category. You don't want to just make yeah. that data available. Um, and, and actually one of the environment agency's defences before uh, to making flood data open before it happened was actually we want to be in control of who's using it because we want to make sure they're using the most up-to-date data. 
because actually the data changes regularly and because it changes regularly the risks of people using out of date data are quite great and with open data you've got no you've got no knowledge of who's using it and for what mm. so so there is a tension there but actually and, and there's a cost there's a cost of providing the data producing and providing the data yes right? when it's an exhaust from what you're doing anyway so oh, right okay you just happen to be producing that data and you, the cost is all the cost you, is is inbuilt into something you else. have to do it yeah it, you have to produce it for whatever reasons there's a statutory requirement you need it to function whatever then actually the only cost or the costs are the cost of provision not the cost of creation um, which is where it gets interesting when you start thinking about organizations other organizations like ordnance survey where the cost of creation Mm. isn't it is part of their job right it it's not an ex, what they produce is not an exhaust it is the product that they produce the the, the data they produce yeah yeah it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a product effectively in its yeah. own right um i'm gonna briefly plug myself um so in the, in the femby taylor review yes that's a thing that exists very proud of that um one of the things that i saw you know i was looking at a very specific investment in cyber physical infrastructure but i looked around for data sets because uh did work with some of the ai teams um over the uh digital catapult and we brought in a number of the other catapults um including the connected places catapult and we looked at the issues that they face so i did a lot of research what data was there and there seemed to be certainly in the academic space there'd be all these awesome data streams that they would love to use and they would last exactly four years basically the length of a grant mm -hmm. you know or three years because it took me a year to get it online um and then they'd fall over yeah. and so i feel that there is probably um this is definitely a a a conversation um because everyone has to make their own decision on this but i do feel like it's not a binary choice between open data and proprietary hidden licensed i feel like there is a middle ground where you know if basically if we want this data to be available for the long term you know we can give it give you x for free i'm thinking of the kind of the way that google amazon web services microsoft yeah. you know the big players in the data space will basically give you free stuff for a bit so if you wanted to just quickly look at your house that's free but if you wanted to start an ai <coughs> software tool that is going to examine all of the flooding data and is going to scrape all that data and you're suddenly downloading loads then you should be paying for that because that will then fund that data to be a product and then it's it's creating a, a relationship where you like you know we can't get rid of it so so interesting and i think that that's a, a, a debate right oh so yeah the, absolutely because the i other... think it's a spectrum like you say yeah it doesn't accommodate for well this is just an exhaust like you say like well we do we will always be doing this so it yeah. will always be there so and it, 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 yeah it, it's an interesting one because i think that the because the, the the old or the original open data argument about government data is we've already paid for it through taxation so it should mm. be available um which fine um you, you know it's a valid argument so i think there's there's, there's a there's a balance in there to yeah be, there's a, definitely a balance in there to be struck but i think that is that that is the argument that i hear that is, a, is definitely a valid argument but simultaneously then it's also vulnerable 
in the sense of right we're cutting costs and this is just a cost out the door it goes well you can look at it in a you can look at it in the this, this current political cycle that we're in of at the start of the coalition government and when the conservatives came into power back in 2010 open data was the thing right francis maud was in there beating people up about releasing open data um it won't surprise you to know that um sources people that i've spoken to have hinted that when boris johnson was in he was less comfortable with open data as a concept um he doesn't and you can see that he doesn't he hasn't proved um reliable at sharing the information that he holds right so <laughs> i see I, I believe you might be referencing the covid inquiry I, I, and uh there have been some very fruity WhatsApp messages I'm, that have I'm been no read longer, out. I'm no longer a civil servant, so I can hint at that more strongly than I ever would have been able to in the past. <laughs> Moving uh, on. Yes. But anyway, so you can see you can see that, that that dichotomy, to your point about you can always rein back from this kind of open data agenda because it's a policy decision. Yeah. And you, you, but it, it needs to be factored in, uh, in, in, in a way that it, it just... It just isn't. It's not seen as a as a as a thing, right? Um, so the Environment Agency has a, a a place now, a platform where you can go and get loads of data. Environment.data.gov.uk. It, it's actually not Environment Agency. It's Defras. So that's where the, the Defra data that there's, there's a, a service wrapper around is is there. So you can get flood data from Environment.data.gov.uk. You can get other data from there. Lidar data, the height, laser height digital terrain model data is all there. Um, but the Environment Agency has had to, in its thinking, had to go through a process of why are we publishing this? What is the benefit of publishing it? Mm. Back to that point I made before about originally they didn't want to share data as open data and their defence was it means people will be using out-of-date data. The flip side to that is we now provide the data as a service, so you can hook into an API and you get live feeds. You can download the data and use it for particular things. Mm. Because the data is easy to access, there's no excuse for people using out-of-date data. Yes, because I think I, I would have turned the argument on its head, which is if you pay for the data once in 2015, and you might have to pay for it again in 2020, you know, some organisations will be asking themselves, can we get away with the 2015 data? Exactly. Let's see if we can get away with using that data. And, and I, I think, uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned to you before, the conversation that was had in the, at the environment, agencies, environment agency director's level meeting that I was involved with about making the LIDAR height data available free, open. And that was around... Um, the, the argument was if we make if, if, if the environment agency make that data open then organizations like ordnance survey can ingest it and improve their products and therefore make money off this data data that we won't see any revenue from mm. which is legitimate that's a legitimate point of view but the argument i made in that meeting was very much we have the environment agency has a bunch of local offices that every day are checking flood risk assessments submitted by developers and those developers are trying their hardest to avoid using the environment agency data because they have to pay. So mm. they look for any alternatives, which consequently means that the, the people in the local offices have to check the height yes. data every time. Because they it, would have been, from somebody who worked in one of those offices, they would have been tracing the magic map. Potentially. It, it, certainly that's what I saw. You know, people were basically taking screenshots low resolution screenshots and then drawing over it in some sort of software package. 
Absolutely. So you end up with this submission and the data is like dubious and it has to be checked. The process, the legal process is it has to be checked. Whereas you make the LIDAR height data open, it is the best data. It's open, it's freely available. So you basically just then mandate when people submit a flood risk assessment, you must use that data. Yeah. There's no cost to you to use it. So use it. Um, and so it's the art. So then the, the environment agencies top board said yeah well why wouldn't we make it open because we'll save x amount of time and effort over here by doing it and and i think that that's the important point around that whole open data discussion is what's the value exchange yes um value is not always uh, always revenue no and, and i think that one of the the traps that we fall into talking about open is a revenue conversation which is if we make that if we make the government data open all of it open data then x billion pounds worth of revenue will magically appear in the exchequer from productivity or whatever it is yes but but there's a bit of a we do x dot 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 and we don't know what is in the dot 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 profit yeah yeah and it's that strategic level kind of like vagary Whereas yeah. actually when you then start getting down to an organisational level and to your point about there's always going to be a cost of provision, then that that's what's the value to me as an organisation? It's going to cost me, you know, a million pounds a year to sh share this data. What What's the million pounds worth of value back that justifies that expenditure? Oh, there isn't any. We won't do it. Oh, there is some. We will do it. And you need that stuff written down, right? Because when somebody, you know, I can imagine a, a young thrusting minister coming in saying, right, where are all the expenses that costs a lot of money and you want on literally the same page to say yes and it saves us this much money exactly okay all right moving on you know or it provides this value exactly that sorry sorry i was got into i did it again uh, well it, but it's really easy to do because that that is what we do yeah uh, and I, I had a conversation just the other day about um somebody asking one of the organizations i'm working with about uh you know they're interested in the value of their data or the value of their product and it's like well that's kind of the right question but what you're probably looking for is a number and actually yeah. you need to go through a process and the process is what is the what, what do we consider value to be to us if value is value people making the right decision over there is is value a benefit a benefit in people making um the right decision sorry the right decisions is what i just said is that is there a value back to us because we don't have to do something else yeah uh, it, it, it's not always a linear money thing it kind of occurs to me that you need going back to that organic almost you know disruptive free agent versus the hierarchy you if you don't have somebody who has a bit of an overview or knows people or you know is able to meander through the organization and find out because i i really don't think you'd have known let's say for the sake of argument maybe you would have done but i think it would be less likely that that these sorts of arguments will actually these people over here in this department looking at this thing and these people over here in this department looking at this thing use that need that and they have to currently rely on this other crap data that comes yeah. to them so you, you know you kind of you know i think this is really interesting about again we've got several themes kind of running through this one which is we have the nature of 
institutions you know a hierarchy looks down at what it's doing and often doesn't have time to look outside of that because they're not being measured on that and that's not what inverted commas the job is but that can give you tunnel vision and if you have people who can free float around then that's really useful so that people can get a better understanding of the possibilities especially when there's something cross-cutting because i'm sure there's more than just data that is cross-cutting you know obviously data is one of the the lifebloods of yeah you know evidence-led decision making but you know there'll be all sorts of cross-cutting things that could be going on and if you don't know what they are then you'll just you'll bet you'll you'll interact with institutions that seem to behave really strangely and it's just because that's a different department and that's so so 100 so the things that are cross-cutting and the things that could be cross-cutting and i think so what one of the uh, so the things that are cross-cutting are you know you've got it departments software that's being built you've got hr departments lawyers you know they cut they cut across organizations but the other thing which is something that, I, that i've been chatting to somebody at the gates foundation about very recently is you have organizations that are building things like platforms in multiple different places to manage data manage software manage and it's like there's a capability within a platform that is the same mm. you're basically taking something in you're storing it there and you're distributing it if, you, if you're looking at that te- the technical platform so that's a capability that could be generic but actually to your point back ago you know, a few a few moments ago about the four-year cycle and um a project will be set up, spun up, it does something and then goes away. Mm. Part of the reason is because the funding stops. But how many yeah. projects have you come across in the, that kind of environment that are building data storage solutions, platforms? There are hundreds of them. Yeah. Every project creates its own warehouse repository yeah. to some degree. But that capability could be generic. This goes to an even wider point of... Um the nurse review of innovation funding in the UK. Oh, Sometimes I feel like I know stuff. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. Uh, uh, looked at, so Israel has a startup central where if you want to find out what is happening with startups, and that can also include government funded R&D, and it can include people who have uses for it. So there's a space for founders and innovators, there's a space for um, investors, and there's a space for people who want to use solutions. Everything goes through that. Whereas the way it is in the UK is every time you spin up some innovation funding, someone's got to build a website, and no one's going to find it, unless they know it's there, frankly, because it's it's you know they did the job which was we built a website they didn't have the mindset of it being this is part of the product that we're trying to create a long-term da, 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 you know so long-term to, impact two two thoughts that go off there which is so one there's a you know working with researchers i've worked with a lot of researchers over the years um, in particular a few projects more recently where yes they're gathering loads of great data but actually what they're trying to do is write a great paper Yes. And the data, again, back to the data being exhausted. And in this case, the data is exhausted, often thrown away. Yeah. Um, so there's the actually understanding that data is the is part of the asset base of the thing that you're doing, because there's no value associated with it because you get rewarded for the paper. Yes. And then the other bit is what you just described about multiple websites is exactly the thing that the GDS, Government Digital Service, when it first was created, looked at fixing with gov.uk. 
Mm. There are a, a bazillion different websites for government organisations, all with different you know, um, URLs. And actually, whilst it was very painful to bring them all together, by bringing them all together and having that common infrastructure, you save money. Definitely there's money being saved in development, but also you make all of the stuff more accessible because people yes. know where to go to start. Yes. So and that, go, there's a common, you, you know, you're in a gov.uk website, you know, I had to do this recently and try and understand the accessibility requirements of putting things out. And it was a lot, it wasn't hard, but there was stuff to it that I hadn't imagined. And yeah. I imagine if you're going to do that, you know, every, if every single department and every single region or every single university and every single project at that university or other research organization is having to do that for the first time they'll make mistakes and it will be inconsistent and it you know that is just what's going to happen because there's no common standard across them or or, or person in control perhaps you know somebody to vet and in a sense gatekeep and say this doesn't meet the standard so it can't go up yeah, I mean, just just linking that, just thinking about that university analogy, and I realise we've wandered off over here somewhere, but it's like it's interesting. Um, yeah. That that uni that that university thing is so it would make sense in my head, and they might do this for a university to have a an a, a data ecosystem that they've created, which is agnostic to the departments. Hmm. So basically, it has gives a capability to every department in the university to store data, publications, blah, 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 in the same way that you can then hook into the data. So any department can hook into that data that's been stored there. So every research project that's done puts its data in there and in a structured, usable format. Anybody else then can hook into it and use it as long as the permissions are right and blah, 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 that bit. But that that infrastructure cost is almost like a 5% charge that's added on rather than it's every project has to do it individually. And then you start to have like a, a node, a data node, right? Mm -hmm. Then that university can then share its data with that university really easily. Okay, permissions permissions and rules. And security, yeah, very important. All, but all, you, all but those you need to navigate, but you've got but the you infrastructure can... to do it. You get an almost an economy. Well, you you get an economy of scale because you have, rather than, you know, one researcher having one day to solve this problem, you have a dedicated team, so they can actually go and build relationships with other organisations and create that system. And then, so linking that all all back to the where the conversation started is so environment.data.gov.uk started out as an environment agency data platform sharing flood data, etc. It is now a DEFRA group data sharing platform. So there is data from all of the organisations on there. So those organisations don't have to recreate another platform, which is mm. what happened in the past. They can hook into, into that one. So, so you can see examples where it works and it's, it happens, but the, the, the step change is not a step change around open or not open. The step change is about thinking generically rather than thinking in this kind of siloed way. Mm, mm. So I guess there's a certain amount of leadership required to be able to do that. You need somebody yeah. to say, you're all doing this separately. I'm I'm the leader and I say you should be doing it together. And in some respects, that's what the 8,000 open data sets target did, was it, it said, you must work together to do this. Whereas, I'm pretty confident, in fact, he says behind the sound, he knows 
that back in in DEFRA, now that pressure's gone, you know, we hit the target, move on, actually silo thinking comes back. Mm. So you end up back working as an organisation on your organisational KPIs, and actually that noise that was over there for a year has gone away now. So what's the solution? You need that as a constant requirement or? I think it's, I think it's, yeah. Do you need that the target? No, you need, uh, I think the the lesson learned is that senior leaders need to show an interest, right? Mm. They need to understand, and this, this actually links to a bit of work that I've just been doing with the Open Data Institute, which is one of the, one of the the difficulties is back to that pyramid that I draw, is the draw, metaphorically drew, um, the people at the top might not have the language to engage with the data people to understand where there might be efficiencies. So you need somebody who can translate effectively. So you have a tra- speak a tra- both languages. You have a tra- it's a language thing. It's a communication and engagement thing between senior leaders. So senior leaders need to be like, I want to be able to do this because it will save me money. I need to be able to understand it. But they need to be able to communicate with the, the people that are doing the technical stuff to understand in common language what's going on to then be able to draw the relationships together because what normally happens this organ this this organization or this team over here will specify what it needs in one way this team will specify what it needs in a slightly different way and so on the face of it to an to, to somebody it will look like two different things mm-hmm. so that's fascinating the bit of work I've just done with the ODI was looking at, um, well, we were looking at trust in the data ecosystem. But the thing that we identified was that there isn't this language Rosetta Stone that exists for senior leaders to talk in plain language with people around data. So we've put that together and created that. Wow. So it sounds like um, it's related to the Apollo Protocol work that we did um, out of the Centre for Digital Built Britain, where it's now moved over to the high value manufacturing catapult are, are, are leading it um but it was about creating a bridge between the built environment and manufacturing to share data but it uh, and you know we were looking at it through this sectoral lens but you're right there is a lens inside organizations there's a, a lens literally from the data conversation yeah to pretty much everybody else <laughs> but it's so i'm doing a lot of work doing a lot of work with a, a bunch of finance people it's exactly the same they have the same conversation we're doing finance we need the finance to be better in the business we need to be able to communicate with the business about finance it's like there's this like really key translator role as, as organizations get more complicated and bigger and you end up with different teams doing roles um and that that, that you know that's as they grow that's not like a, a function of society as organizations grow you end up creating these internal silos they need to be able to talk to each other and often a lot of the problems that i see working on transformation projects is where they can't or where they when they do talk to each other they they misfire the best example you'll love this working in defra is sat in the data team we had these these meetings and we had like you you know a meeting with us an agenda and guest speakers the first guest speaker was a guy from the IT department and he came in to talk to us about a new system. And he was talking about a new IT system. The second speaker was somebody coming in from the one of the, um, the ecosystem policy units. And they were talking about system and what they needed to do to alter the system. And they were talking about environmental system and ecological system. 
So using the same word in the same organization in two, a two hour window completely differently. And if you don't acknowledge that those words get used in a non-common way, that's where some of the issues come from. And you have these silos created. Well, I think that's uh, some serious food for thought. And I think there's some definitely some calls to action for various government departments and research organisations, in fact, businesses as well. So thank you very much for the chat, Mike Rose. Um, I've been Henry Femi-Taylor and this has been the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. Thank you for listening. We didn't do an intro. <laughs> but but it that was podcast that was that was big podcast that was really good um did you enjoy being steered because oh, no. yeah. you're like we've ended up over here and i didn't want to say yeah i know <laughs> that was the plan i was like oh this is interesting let's drill into that but let's do a quick intro let's do a quick intro um how shall i introduce you uh let's call it let's say it's the accidental podcast i i quite like i quite like the idea of this being an accidental podcast okay um, i like that and I Hello. Can so, yeah. yeah, go. For, all right, yeah, you do that. Uh, hi, everybody. This is an introduction recorded after the event because this was a bit of an accidental podcast. I've been speaking to uh, Mike Rose, who is my mentor at Dharma, um, and we just started talking and thought we'd better record the, the conversation. So, Mike, introduce yourself. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, that was an interesting experience. So hopefully everyone enjoys it. Uh, my name is Mike. Uh, I am an, my, my spiel is I'm an expert in intellectual property rights and how they manifest in data and digital. Um, but what I really am is somebody that's worked in the public sector for 20 odd years, uh, learned a lot of stuff about how data gets shared and transformation that sits around it. And I'm now starting to try and apply that wherever I turn up. Awesome. And Dharma, by the way, is the global data management community. And that's what I thought would be a good organization for me to join. Um, so that's why, why we did it. But yeah, we just started talking about your experience at uh, DEFRA and with government open data. So I, I won't see it anymore because I have no idea what I said at the start or what you said at the start. So we'll let it roll. Enjoy the accidental podcast. Uh, no, I've just turned the recording back on um, and you've got some experience uh, in running podcasts yourself, don't you, Mike? What's your podcast? Um, so I'm currently uh, I'm a co-host on a podcast called It's Not All About the Numbers with uh, my good friend uh, Chris Argent, uh, which is a podcast produced by uh, his organisation called Generation CFO, um, Gen CFO, and uh, yeah, we talk about transformation and digital and that kind of stuff. Friday Friday afternoon pub chat. Awesome. Yeah, I thought, got to give you a plug. Got to give you a plug. Thank you very much. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Navigating Major Programs podcast with Ricardo Costantino, which I think is elevating the conversation around infrastructure and major projects. He talks to leading experts around the world to get edifying insights on a range of topics from EDI to integrated project delivery and management to machine learning. 
Every episode systematically dismantles misconceptions with candid and real insights because Ricardo is himself an expert, and so are his guests. I really enjoyed the episode where special guest Jim Barnard, an expert in investment in major programs himself, turned the tables on Ricardo and asked him to explain the real benefits of collaborative contracts for public-private partnerships. Great episode, but there are loads of others, always with experts, always insightful. So, check out Navigating Major Programs, available wherever you get your podcasts.